Hi there, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. We're a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in oncology. Today, we're thrilled to welcome an international panel of experts on our first ever breast cancer VJ session to discuss the most important data to come out of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium 2020. In this panel discussion, the session's chair, Dr. Erica Hamilton from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, speaks to Dr. Matteo Lambertini from the University of Genova and Professor Sybil Loibel from the German Breast Group. The panel discussed the latest exciting advances and their highlights from the meeting, including data presented on CDK46 inhibitors for early breast cancer, the responder trial, and their thoughts on the latest immunotherapies being studied. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's breast cancer VJ session. So welcome to the breast cancer sessions with VJ Oncology. I'm Dr. Erica Hamilton, and I'm joined uh, by Matteo Lambertini and Sybil Loibel. Um, briefly, I'm Erica Hamilton. I direct the breast cancer research program at Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee. Matteo, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my, my name is Matteo Lambertini. I'm a medical oncologist from the University of Genova, in Genova in the Northwest of Italy. Great, thanks so much for joining us. And Sybil, would you like to introduce My yourself as well? My name is Sybil Loewe, I'm a gynecologist, oncologist uh, from Frankfurt, Germany, and I'm the head of the germ breast group. Great, thank you so much. So first, let's uh, just start off with, um, what did we find the most exciting out of San Antonio this year? It's been a interesting 2020 with uh, things being virtual, but it's been nice to see that our progress really hasn't stopped. Matteo, I may start with you. What what did you think was the kind of single uh, most exciting thing coming out of San Antonio? I think the most important news are in the field of early uh, breast cancer, luminal-like breast cancer, so hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative disease, with two uh, most important topics. One is the uh, use of CDK for CC inhibitor in the adjuvant setting. Now we have clarified a bit. Uh, their role and uh, the evidence in this setting. And the other one is the um, possibility to use Oncotype DX to spare chemotherapy also in some patient with a node positive disease. So I think these are the two most important um, news from San Antonio 2020 from my side, from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely, Matteo. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. It was definitely a, a big year for early uh, ER positive disease. Sybil, anything else to to add to that? Uh, were those your big takeaways? Anything else that stood out I to you? I think in general, what is presented on Wednesday morning in the general session, one is, are the supposed to be the most important uh, highlights. And I think uh, early breast cancer and especially the hormone receptor positive early breast cancer patients finally have had um, a focus this year. And also with the IBIS2 data, which were presented in other um, smaller studies, um, we could see that there is a focus uh, on this uh, special uh, breast cancer patients this year. and. Uh, the CDK46 inhibitor trials have long been awaited and some have already been shown at ESMO this year, last year in 2020 and have shown some expected and some unexpected results. And now uh, a third trial joined and did partially, but really not confirm what have been uh, presented in the first uh, two trials with a very, very, very short uh, follow-up for the hormone receptor positive or to negative breast cancer population. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've kind of uh, hit hit the big topics here. So certainly, you know, we initially saw um, negative data from Palace, um, which I think was, you know, disappointing. And then we ended up seeing positive data from Monarch E. Um, and then at San Antonio, we saw Penelope B. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Penelope B? And, and where do you think we sit now with these three trials? Kind of um, how do you think things are going to end up? Well, if you ask me where we sit, I think we sit just in the middle. We don't know where we sit. We still don't know where we sit. And I think we need more time. We need more time to have longer follow-up to see where the curves go. Um, looking at the Penelope B curves, we still have to fear, but I don't hope to see that, but we don't know that yet, that the Bonarch E data might also con the curves convene. And then we have no positive result because when we look at the Penelope P curves at early, they separate nicely and then they uh, come together again. And uh, currently we don't know overall. I wouldn't say the trials are negative or positive. All trials lead to some increase of knowledge. I would say the trials just haven't met the primary endpoint, which is, which is rather disappointing mainly for the patients because we have lost the enthusiasm and cannot give the drug to those patients. Uh, fortunately, Monarch E has positive data, has um, a confirmed primary endpoint, uh, which was important to see this year after the interim analysis presented at ESMO. But um, the final um, IDFS analysis only came four months after the interim analysis and so we don't have so many more events and it's still median follow-up of less than two years and personally i think it's too short we need to wait until we have a median follow-up of at least four years uh, to see if the initial hopeful data holds true the trial for this effect of is rather overpowered that's why we see a statistically significant effect and Penelope B might be a little underpowered uh, to show any effect. And so I think it's it's the the question of the role of the CDK46 inhibitors in early hormone receptor positive or negative breast cancer has not yet been answered. And uh, we need to wait. We cannot give the patients right away uh, abemacyclib. Uh, maybe some of our very high-risk patients where we assume they already have metastasized, they might benefit. But otherwise, I'm, I might be too conservative here, but I would be very cautious here to give false promises to our patients. So and in summary, the Penelope B trial is a special trial because it was the first trial started. That's why we only used one year of the CDK406 inhibitors, but the next generation used two years. And the Natalie, the last trial, which is still recruiting, um, uses three years of a CDK406 inhibitor. But what we have seen also is that the um, um, compliance uh, is uh, very difficult to keep up. That's why... Maybe that was one of the reasons in Palace with over 40% of the patients did not complete the treatment and stopped early. Whereas in the uh, monarchy, it was only 16% of the patients. I think this is um, uh, it's a much better rate of patients completing uh, the treatment. And then the second is that the population selected was a very high risk population. Those patients have not responded to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so they are already at high risk, deemed to need chemotherapy, but they 
had had not responded optimally and had a large tumor at the beginning, had still a, a lot of tumor residual disease and had a high grading over uh, ER negative. They could be ER negative and progesterone receptor positive and still qualify for participation. This is the so-called CBSEG score, which we used to select the high-risk population. And uh, it's a very high-risk population with a three-year IDFS of 77%. It's probably the highest-risk population treated with a CDK4-6 inhibitor early breast cancer. Yeah, I, com I completely agree. I, I agree about the follow-up. You know, Mateo, there has been a lot of talk about, um, you know, picking the high-risk population for these three trials, right? You know, Palace and Monarchy tried to pick high-risk patients based on nodal status, and then Monarchy, you know, had some additional criteria. But Penelope B really based on a non-PCR to chemotherapy, where, as you know, PCRs for ER positive, you know, we, we traditionally think are a little bit less important than say triple negative or HER2. What, what are your thoughts on the patient populations here or, you know, differential activity of CDK4 and 6? I mean, anything to add here, Mateo? Yeah, I completely agree that, I, that this is just the beginning of the story for the CDK4-6 inhibitor in the early setting. But I think that as compared to the uh, to ESMO 2020, after San Antonio, we have some more insights on the topic. If I go back to ESMO 2020, my, my two main explanations for the different findings of Pallas and Monarchy were what we have just mentioned. So different patient population, different uh, definition of high-risk population, and also discontinuation rate, which was much higher in Pallas as compared to Monarchy. However, in, uh, in San Antonio, we had a presentation in the poster discussion session of the PALAS data in which the author has performed a, a kind of per protocol analysis and also landmark analysis adjusting for exposure to, uh, pal uh, to uh, palbociclib and they could not observe any difference. And in the uh, Penelope B, the discontinuation rate actually was not that high as compared to PALAS and actually was even lower than Monarchy. So probably discontinuation was not only it was not the main reason for the negative results of PALAS and the same for the high risk patient population because it's true that PALAS included more patients with the uh, one to three positive nodes as compared to Monarchy but actually Penelope B is the one with the highest patient population and still could not see any difference. So yeah, one of the potential explanations is that uh, abemacyclib and palbocyclib are different uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors. This is not supported in the advanced setting, but this is one of the potential explanations that we have to, uh, to consider for these results. But I think the most important point, as Sibyl has mentioned, is the follow-up, which is really too short for Pallas and Monarchy to derive strong conclusion on the uh, role uh, of these two molecules in the early setting. Monarchy, I, I, I think the results are really important. The 3% uh, absolute difference in IDFS, which is maintaining distal relapses. So what is actually doing abemocyclic is reducing distal recurrences, which is what we want to see in the early setting. But I think it's very important, especially in such a high-risk patient population, to continue to follow this patient and to see what's going on after a few years hoping not to see the curves uh, uh, coming together as seen in Penelope B after four years. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And we're probably remiss if we don't mention um, that the ribocyclob is still currently enrolling and that they went back and enrolled some uh, higher risk patients with a more positive node. So we eagerly kind of await what we see for that third um, adjuvant CDK46 trial as well. 
Mateo, your your other big highlight and takeaway from San Antonio was the responder data. Um, so kind of the the mirror of Taylor X for patients that had known positive. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is a very, very important study. Uh, uh, this is a kind of second step of the Taylor X in which uh, the authors wanted to address the role of adjuvant chemotherapy added to endocrine therapy for, for a patient with uh, one to three positive nodes, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer, and uh, a patient with recurrent score from uh, uh, zero to 25 were randomized to receive or not chemotherapy in addition to endocrine therapy. Overall, the trial is negative because it's actually in the uh, overall population, it showed that chemotherapy adds benefit on the top of endocrine therapy. But what we uh, waited was the subgroup analysis according to menopausal status, so breaking down the patient population in the premenopausal and postmenopausal uh, patient population. And what we see is that in the postmenopausal patient population, there is actually no a benefit of adding chemotherapy on the top of endocrine therapy, same results, no, no signals that chemotherapy can add something in these uh, uh, patients. Irrespective of uh, recurrent score and number of positive nodes, so same results in one, two, or three uh, positive nodes and according to the recurrent score. On the contrary, for premenopausal patients, there is apparently a larger benefit with the addition of chemotherapy in the order of five to, uh, uh, 4% to 5% absolute difference in IDFS at five years. However, as we have also seen in TaylorX, it's a bit complicated to interpret the results in the premenopausal patient population, especially in the, U, in the US where OFS was not that common to be given before uh, 2016 when the guidelines were updated on this topic. Uh, and also in, uh, in uh, responder, the majority of premenopausal patients did not receive ovarian function suppression. So receive a kind of suboptimal treat endocrine treatment as compared to what we will give now in 2021. So based on this data, we cannot spare chemotherapy in premenopausal patients, recurrent score up to 25 with one to three positive nodes. However, we can speculate that some of the advantage seen with the use of chemotherapy in this setting could not have be seen if we used ovarian function suppression in this setting, or at least the difference will have been smaller. Of course, these are speculations. I have no uh, data to, to support what I'm just saying, but it's a kind of similar speculation that we have done with TaylorX. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was very reassuring for all of us to see that, you know, those positive nodes for postmenopausal, you know, another group of patients that we can spare chemotherapy. You know, certainly we're trying to give everybody we can the best outcome, but we're also trying to not overtreat patients. Um, you know, Sybil, any, any comments on the premenopausal population? You know, I think there's a, a good healthy debate going on of whether, um, you know, whether some of that benefit truly was chemotherapy. Um, and then there are some people that feel like most of it was probably ovarian suppression. Are there any premenopausal patients, whether that's lower lymph nodes or any other characteristics where you would um, discuss with them ovarian suppression with endocrine therapy instead of chemotherapy in this population? Well, honestly, I, I would not um, withhold chemotherapy from these very young patients. Um, I know that ovarian function suppression is a very good treatment, but we have absolutely no data comparing optimal ovarian function suppression 
with optimal chemotherapy. All data show that a GnRH analog for two years without tamoxifen is as good as chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy was CMF. The CMF is a very good chemotherapy to shut down the ovaries, but it's inferior uh, in terms, even in uh, compared to an optimal anthracycline regimen. So I would be careful to say from these data, only because I think around 12% only had an ovarian function suppression, we can spare chemotherapy. And I would also be careful just to interpret the data that only the premenopause will benefit from chemotherapy. Overall, this trial could not demonstrate that chemotherapy uh, is uh, not necessary for this patient population. These are the overall results, and this is the main, um, the primary endpoint, and we have to focus on the primary endpoint. So the primary endpoint does not support it. Now we want to explain where does this come from. It probably comes from mainly the premenopausal patients and the interaction test was positive, but we don't know how, um, how exactly this was measured, premenopausal activity and how were the patients after uh, chemotherapy? How many had regained ovarian function suppression? How many started later with a GnRH analog within the first two years? So all those we don't know, and that's why I would be more careful. I know a lot of people say, well, this is just the effect of the ovarian function suppression, the, which we see here. I am a bit more... Um, hesitant to support that. And I'm also not uh, supporting uh, this, uh, the, the sentence that the postmenopausal patients with one, two, three lymph nodes do not need any chemotherapy at all. We need to be a bit more careful with this um, ungated um, uh, de-escalation. We have made tremendous um, benefit and uh, effect in the last 20 years with increasing the treatment and with uh, optimizing the treatment, not on, only the systemic treatment, but also radiotherapy, surgery, endocrine therapy, uh, targeted agents. And now we just say we can forget about that. We just give them uh, endocrine therapy, optimal endocrine therapy, and maybe we should give them just anti 2 therapy with a little bit of chemotherapy and we get the same results. I would be very careful here too, because some of those uh, recommendations we give are not proven. Some of those recommendations are not proven, proven in a randomized phase three trial, properly powered as a non-inferiority trial. And this trial clearly had a different um, approach. And overall, the trial could not confirm that chemotherapy can be spared for everybody. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I feel I feel very similar with the premenopausal. I think we all hope that that was the benefit, but I just don't think we have the data to reliably tell somebody that. So let's let's switch over to metastatic disease um, for a little bit. And Mateo, you know, we saw the results of Keynote three five five. Um, we've certainly seen a lot of results both in the early stage setting and in the metastatic setting with immunotherapy uh, for triple negative breast cancer. Um, where, where do you stand with that? What are your thoughts coming out of San Antonio? So I think that the immunotherapy story in breast cancer is becoming a bit complicated right now, especially after San Antonio. So I can, I can admit that I'm a bit confused, especially on the uh, best chemotherapy backbone to associate with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, because now we have three trials, first line uh, treatment, triple negative breast cancer, 
two with atezolizumab, one showing positive results with ateso plus abraxane, but the, the uh, similar trial with ateso plus paclitaxel not showing any benefit of the addition of ateso. Now we have the uh, pembrolizumab data, and in San Antonio they presented the uh, uh, subgroup analysis according to type of chemotherapy, and in this trial could be uh, paclitaxel, uh, napaclitaxel, or uh, ca uh, carboplatin gemcitabine. And apparently there is no difference, or actually it appears that the paclitaxel is, is slightly better than the other two. Uh, actually, there is no difference between the three, but paclitaxel is not the worst, as we would have expected based on the uh, atezolizumab data, and kind of similar consideration in the early setting. Again, we have uh, positive pembrolizumab trial with carbotaxel followed by an, uh, anthracycline cyclophosphamide-based chemo, positive trial with uh, uh, napaclitaxel ateso followed by anthracycline cyclophosphamide, a negative trial, even though still a uh, uh, short follow-up, the Neotrip with uh, um, uh, carbo uh, uh, napaclitaxel uh, without anthracycline cyclophosphamide. But at San Antonio, they presented an NCI trial with carboplatin taxol, so not uh, napaclitaxel, plus ateso without anthracycline cyclophosphamide in the early setting, showing increased PCR rate. So right now I can say that I'm a bit confused on which is the best chemotherapy backbone. In my clinic, if I would have all these options available, I will, I will use the same treatment that was studied in the trial. So if I have to choose first line, um, uh, if I have to use atezolizumab first line, I will use napaclitaxel. If I will use pembrolizumab, I will use any of the three regimen, chemotherapy regimen, and the same I will apply in the early setting. So this will be my take for after San Antonio of this data. Yeah, I, I, I thought the same, Matteo. I thought it was very interesting um, in that smaller trial with the immunotherapy presented at San Antonio. It was only 60 patients, but the control arm really underperformed there. You know, the control arm PCR rate was only about 18%. So I think certainly when we're talking about small numbers of patients, Sometimes, you know, we, we see a little bit of swing just based on the patients that are included. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, testing, um, that the testing for atezolizumab doesn't necessarily overlap with the testing for pd one positivity with pembrolizumab. Sybil, what do, you, what do you make out of all of this and what are you currently doing in your clinic? Well, currently we follow a similar principle as uh, Mateus just suggested. If you want, if you have done the test, um, showing pd one positivity, which goes with atezolizumab, then we would give them their paclitaxel. And the majority of patients already had paclitaxel in early breast cancer, so we would like to switch anyway in the metastatic setting, either the taxane or uh, to another chemo, completely other chemotherapy. So net paclitaxel goes with atezo, and if for any other reason I don't want to give NAP, I want to give another chemotherapy, or I have done another test, or the patient comes already with another test done, I would go for Pembro with another with the one of the other chemotherapy regimen testing. So this is, I think, an easy solution for the metastatic setting. We don't know where we end up in the early setting. The Neotrip trial, which did not show an increased PCR rate, we have to keep in mind that this trial, uh, this is the second, uh, the um, secondary uh, outcome and uh, the primary um, endpoint is EFS, which we haven't seen. And with the PCR, the problem with PCR is if you enroll two uh, high-risk patients with a lot of tumor load involved nodes, the risk 
um, the likelihood to get a, chem um, a PCR is lower than with smaller tumors. So in the very small tumors, you achieve a chemotherapy regardless of the treatment you add. And in the high-risk population, you also might not achieve uh, the optimal um, PCR rate because the tumors are less likely to achieve a PCR anyway. So we really need to see what we found. Interesting in the NeoTrip trials that they found a correlation between DL1 positivity and PCR rate. Only the IC23 PDL1 positives, they had a higher PCR rate than the um, uh, placebo arm or chemotherapy alone arm, whereas the IC1 or the IC0 PDL1, they had, there was no difference. So this is the only trial suggesting maybe there is an effect, whereas the other two trials didn't see a correlation uh, or predictive value of the PD1 test, regardless what test you use with the effect of the checkpoint inhibitor. Yeah, I think those are really important points. So with the time and answers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's all right. Sometimes that's what we get. Um, with the time we have remaining, um, why don't we wrap up with each one of us kind of saying one other tidbit from San Antonio um, that we were excited to see, or alternatively, something we're excited to see um, in the future that's coming. Maybe maybe I'll start with this. Um, you know, we also saw the results of um, Infotunity 130, and this was a pad asserted the AKT inhibitor in first-line triple negative. And if you recall, we'd seen some pretty encouraging phase two data um, with the AKT inhibitors, but unfortunately, uh, this trial was uh, negative. Um, it did take patients with alterations um, in the PI3 AKT pathway, um, but unfortunately, it was negative. You know, we still have the PACT trial with Capivacertib um, that so far has shown an overall survival benefit. So I'm really encouraged um, and, and curious to see what we see in some of these AKT trials in the future not only in triple negative, where I think the biology is a little bit different, but we've also seen some pretty encouraging results um, for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So that may be my uh, looking to the future statement. Um, Mateo, what, what are you excited to see or um, thinking about these days? I have a conflict of interest on, on this study, but I will mention also our uh, presentation in the general session three, because I think it's a very important message for many, for many women. Uh, it's a large meta-analysis on the safety of pregnancy after breast cancer, safety from both fetal side and maternal side. And here we clearly show putting together many studies that were done in the last years that after adequate treatment and follow-up, having a pregnancy following breast cancer is not detrimental for, for the prognosis of the patient, so it's safe for the patient. There is no increased risk of major malformation for the baby. There is some, um, uh, an increase of some pregnancy complication like a cesarean section, a small for gestational age that, uh, uh, that, are, uh, that for which we, uh, I think we should follow these pregnancies more closely during, uh, during gestation. But the main message is that we need to keep in mind that after treatment, that there's life after cancer. And so we have also, when we uh, discuss treatment recommendation with patients, we also have to think about the long-term follow-up and also the possibility to uh, go back to a normal life, including the possibility to have a family for, for many young women. I think this is a, an important message. Yeah, Matteo, I agree. I think that's um, important for a lot of our patients. Um, Sybil, what about you? Well, there were many other interesting uh, studies, and we are 
all waited very long for the Atinastat trial, which was also not meeting its primary endpoint. We had another phase two trial uh, being showing a huge difference and the phase three trial not confirming the result. And I think this underlines that we need to very, be very careful what conclusions we uh, draw from or drew, drew from uh, our uh, phase two trials. We can easily be, be misled and I think a, fa a randomized phase three trial remains uh, the standard, the goal uh, to confirm the effectiveness of a new drug. And we have seen that this with the opportunity study, unfortunately, the uh, AKT inhibitor did not um, improve PFS for these patients, but I think we need to wait for additional analysis. It's an interesting drug, which might not have yet found its place in the triple negative breast cancer scenario, as you said. And uh, similar with the Atinostat trial, I think um, we, we need to understand why we have a positive phase two trial. Is it just the selection bias of the patients we enroll here, or do we really um, have different characteristics or different tumor characteristics which might point uh, to a positive result compared to a, a result which is rather disappointing? I think a lot of people hoped to improve uh, the treatment and the metastatic breast cancer setting further, but so far we could not see it. And we also saw a lot of um, uh, additional analysis from large trials. Um, uh, the keynote study, as already mentioned, we saw subgroup analysis, quality of life analysis um, from impatient 31, I, I assume it was. And I think uh, we should look at all those data as well to get a more comprehensive picture of the role of the checkpoint inhibitors in uh, breast cancer. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thanks, uh, Matteo and Sybil, uh, for joining me and discussing this. And on behalf of uh, VJ Oncology, we'd also like to thank our viewers for discussing our thoughts post-San Antonio. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so that we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.